as we kind of transition into chapter 8 here. Um, in chapter 7, we saw a great victory. And you guys remember the ark uh, was returned to the children of Israel. The Philistines returned the ark. Um, and you'll see here in chapter 7, if you look back at verse 6, kind of towards the end of verse 6, the children of Israel cry out to God and said, we have sinned against the Lord. And uh, this is how revivals always start, you know, where uh, repentance, right? And that's what we saw in chapter 7 is the children of Israel repenting. And as they look back um, on what they have done and they return to God. And I was reminded of this, um, this story when I was reading this verse about a preacher um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. His name was Gypsy Smith. Have you guys heard of that? Any Gypsy Smith? Um, they, they equated his ministry similar to Billy Graham's, where every time he taught, people would give their life to the Lord. They, they said they never heard him teach where people didn't give their life to the Lord. He had that gift of evangelism. And he was a uh, traveling minister. He did a lot of ministry in Europe as well as on the East Coast of the United States. And um, one thing he would do that he was kind of known for, or famous for, when he would go into a town, he would always stop on the outskirts of the town, draw a circle in the, in the dirt, and he would, pray, he would kneel down and pray in that circle. And after doing this several times, people asked him what he was praying for. And of course, he would tell them that he was praying for um, revival in the town, right? He was praying over the town and for revival. And when they asked him why he drew a circle and kneeled down in the circle, he said, well, every time he started to pray, he would first pray for the man inside the circle, that revival would begin with the man inside the circle. And so it helped him to remember to remain humble before the Lord and to ultimately revival starts with us, right? With our heart that we are coming before the Lord. And that's what we saw with the children of Israel. It wasn't just you know, a mass movement. It's a whole bunch of individuals that um, kneeled down before God and, um, and, and we saw revival there. Now, one thing you'll notice that chapter seven, when it winds down is that there was peace. The Philistines were driven out um, and, and God did the work, right? Um, Philistines were driven out of the, the cities that they occupied. Um, and it even says at the end of verse uh, verse 14, it says, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites also. And so there's peace in Israel on all sides. And I'll read the end of uh, chapter seven here, verse 15. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And so Samuel, you could say he was a circuit preacher as well. He went on a, he went on a circuit between these towns and judged Israel. And um, Samuel was, um, just to give you an idea, as we transition to chapter 8, there's about a 20 to 25-year gap. Okay, and so sometimes it's, it's important, right? Because when we're reading through the Bible, sometimes we just keep going and not realize like, wow, these guys just turned, you know, all of a sudden, but it's a pretty significant amount of time that happens between chapter seven and chapter eight. And we're, 
going to make another transition biblically also from the, um, from the era of the judges, right? And the era of the judges started with Moses in Exodus. He was the first judge, you could say, right? He was, um, you know, it, it was a theocracy. It was a, a government run by God. And he had a spokesman, and that spokesman was Moses, right? And he was the first one to be a spokesman for God. And then he handed it off to Joshua. And then you can go through the book of Judges, of course, like Deborah and Gideon and all the, all the different judges there. Um, and then ultimately we get to Samuel, and he's the last of the judges, or I, I consider him the last of the judges. We're going to be introduced to a couple more. But um, I, I think biblically you can call him the last of the judges. And it switches then from a theocracy to a monarchy, right? And so this is kind of the transition chapter uh, between that switch between a theocracy and a monarchy of the Israeli government. Now, Samuel being the last judge, does anybody know who was the judge before Samuel? That's a a tough one. He's the most famous judge. One I didn't mention, but the most famous one that I didn't mention. Anybody? Samson. Now, what's kind of interesting, because sometimes we read these books out of, you know, just, you know, you might read Judges and you might read Ruth. Ruth happened during the time of the Judges, right? Deborah uh, and Gideon were probably Judges during the time of Ruth. Um, Samson was finished off the book of Judges. He was the last judge mentioned there. And um, Samuel, just to give you an idea, when Samuel was a young man growing up in the temple under Eli, Samson was probably a judge, so they're probably contemporaries. Um, You know, their lives probably overlapped a little bit. Um, But that was the last judge before Samuel. And then, of course, Samuel is the last one of the judges um, mentioned here. So let's get into uh, chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse, uh, we'll read verses 1 through 3. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. And this is why I say there's other judges mentioned here, but you'll notice right away that it says he made his sons judges over Israel, and that he is not referring to God, it's referring to Samuel. Uh, Verse two, the name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways, They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Now, as we're going through the book of 1 Samuel, this might seem like a familiar story because you remember another couple of sons, right? We were talking about Eli's sons, and uh, now we have Samuel's sons. Kind Kind of interesting, huh? And Samuel grew up next to Eli's sons, was aware of what happened there. And now we have Samuel's two sons here. And it does kind of beg the question of what, what happened here, right? Because, um, you know, it's Samuel. <laughs> How could it be? Samuel, you know, what a great uh, prophet here. What a great judge. And the only thing, I mean, there's a couple of possibilities, right? These guys, they may have been raised in a great home and they decided to go their own way. That's one possibility, um, I think there's a, kind of another hint here in verse one, which I mentioned is that Samuel appointed them judges, although he was probably aware that they probably weren't qualified to be judges. And so, um, you know, 
So a little bit of a hint there that something was going on. The other thing that we noticed at the end of chapter 7 was Samuel was on a circuit, right? He was always out doing ministry. And it may have been that he just wasn't home much, you know? He, was, he neglected his ministry in his house. And uh, that's tough to say. I mean, there's a lot of great people in the Bible, but they all screw. <laughs> I mean, I mean, some of them, we don't hear about their screw-ups as much, like Joseph, right? We don't hear about their screw-ups, but everybody screws up. And, and that may have been the case with Samuel, where this, uh, the ministry, the weight of the judge and what he had to do for the people was such that he uh, neglected um, his home, right? His responsibility to his children. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 7 and these are familiar verses, so the only reason I point this out is because Samuel had access to this. Obviously, this is part of the writings of Moses. Um, and talking about the law and the, uh, the commandments of God, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. In Psalm 78, 5 through 7, we read, for he stat- for he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And so obviously Samuel should have been aware of this. Um, and again, I, I could be wrong, right? I mean, maybe they were, maybe he was home a lot. Maybe he didn't neglect the ministry. Uh, but it is surprising that both of them did walk away in a similar fashion. And it says they, they were accepting bribes, right? And, um, and, and so we see their, their downfall there. So um, chapter eight, we'll read verses four through five. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And said to him, I love how they, they break this out. Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. I just love that. You are old. And I was trying to figure out how old was Samuel at this time. And the best I could come up with, and this is more from historical uh, Jewish writings, was he was probably in his early 50s somewhere in that area. So that's, that's a little rough to say that, I think. But some of the, and the young kids are back there in the youth group. So they, they would probably agree that that was right, right of them to say that you were old. Um, but either way, the, the point of the matter is, I think is what they're seeing here is um, they're looking at Samuel and he's obviously not gonna live forever. He's the judge of Israel. He's the one they look to for guidance, for a word from the Lord. And then they look at what they're thinking. Well, these, this is gonna, these two knuckleheads are going to be the, the ones that take over when Samuel dies, you know. And, um, you know, they're looking at it from a fleshly perspective and saying, this is, this is not what we want, right? And then, and then they're looking around them at these other nations and how they run their governments. You know, they don't run their governments like we do. They don't turn to the Lord and do all these things. Uh, they have a king and the king uh, makes decisions and the king has an army, you know, to protect them and all this great stuff. And uh, they're looking around them thinking, well, maybe that way's better, right? The way we've been doing things. Uh, I know we've had 20, 25 years of peace and we had great revival, but that was a long time ago. 
And uh, maybe there's a better way. And the way I look at it is this is kind of like a leadership vacuum, you know, um, where, yes, Samuel was one man, but they were looking at the fleshly side saying he was going to die. And, and there was really no other leader there that they saw um, that was adequate in replacing Samuel. And um, there, this is just, you know, one thing that kind of gets me when we're looking at this is that um, there's this guy named, named down here, Dr. Vance Havner, and he wrote this uh, kind of saying that, that uh, a, a work of man uh, empowered by God, right? So God uses a man or a woman uh, for the work of the ministry. I mean, you could look at like, let's take like Martin Luther, for example, right? Where um, God uses him to do a fresh work, a new work, right? And he developed this progression. And the progression is first it starts with the man um, and then the God uses him to start a movement, right? And then that movement becomes a machine and the machine then becomes a monument and then the monument becomes a mausoleum, right? So there's this progression and, the, and really historically you look at some of these, you know, like the Lutheran church or, or the Catholic church or different, different uh, movements by God has kind of gone through this similar progression. And so he documents that. And I could see that here in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, where, uh, yes, in chapter 7, we saw a movement, but that movement then has become a machine, and it's nothing new. There's a new generation now, right? 20, 25 years later, there's a new generation. They're not seeing anything new that's happening. And so uh, this movement has become a machine, right? And we need to be careful of this as a church body, as individuals that follow Christ, that we don't follow this same pattern. Um, you know, the, the, you know, like if you're a good example, if you're um, ministering to a, to a couple that, uh, like a married couple that is struggling in their marriage, the first time you do that, uh, maybe as a young believer, you're going to search the scriptures. You're going to you're going to pray to the Lord. You're going to seek help from you know from wise counsel, and and then you're going to minister to them based on what the Lord tells you to do. But after you've done that ten or fifteen times, then you rely on your expertise and you rely on maybe some books in the world or you rely on Google. Uh, I've done this before. Let me just Google it. And and you know so then you. You, instead of relying on the Holy Spirit, you go to these other, other uh, methods, right? Your, your experience, potentially. And uh, the this, this same thing can happen within the church is leading a ministry. When you first start leading a particular ministry, everything's new, everything's fresh. You're relying on the Holy Spirit. But as, as things go along, then year after year, your ministry events become the same every year, every year, because you just copy and paste them. It's so much easier than praying, right? Uh, you could just copy and paste it from last year. And so this could be applied to many areas, a personal walk, as well as the church and how we go forward as a church body, uh, that we need to be careful that we're be, we stay in that position where we're being moved by the Holy Spirit. We don't become a machine because that will ultimately lead to just a monument, right? Where people look at it and go, oh, yeah, remember the good old days? And that becomes a monument, right? And, and maybe you build a statue of, uh, you know, whoever, Martin Luther, right, or whatever, and everyone goes, oh, that was a great guy, you know, and that's the monument. Um, so we don't ever want to get there as a church, but that's where the children of Israel are, where they're 
um, no longer seeking the Lord, but they're looking for the world for answers, right? They're going to Google for answers, and that's what they're, they're doing here. So Galatians uh, chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. Again, I always throw the familiar verses out. I like them. Um, I, I like how Paul approaches this. This only I want to learn from you. And he seems so sincere, right? Teach me something, please. Uh, did you receive the spirit by the works of the law? Did you do all this work and that's how you receive the spirits? Or by hearing of faith? And obviously it's a rhetorical question. Verse three, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? So again, we, you know, Paul's saying the same message here that we need to be careful um, that we don't rely on our flesh. We don't rely on the world for our wisdom and how to make decisions and how to proceed. Um, all right. Chapter eight, verses six. We'll read verses six through eight. So they make this request to Samuel and uh, verse six says, but the thing displeased Samuel. Well, yeah, of course they told him he was old guy. <laughs> uh, when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Good job, Samuel. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For, you have not, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought you out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. And so Samuel did the right thing. He went before the Lord and he brought this request before the Lord. And the Lord, you know, obviously the Lord's displeased with this request. And some people will say, well, the Lord never wanted a, a king in, in Israel. Um, that it's obvious here from these verses that he never wanted a king. But we can look back at... Uh, um, some of the writings of Moses, uh, some of the things that were said to the patriarchs like Jacob and Abraham. And we know that God did prophesy a king in Israel. And so I want to pull up some of those verses. So Genesis thirty-five eleven, this is a promise given to Jacob. And it says, um, also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. Sounds pretty good, right? Pretty straightforward. Um, to Judah, this is what's said, Genesis 49, 8 through 10. And this is Jacob um, prophesying over Judah here. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is the lion's whelp. For the prey, my son, have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. And this is the position of power, right? The kingship nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And so we see this promise given to Judah as well that the kingship will ride through him. The, the, the royal lineage all the way to Jesus Christ shall ride through Judah. Um, Deuteronomy 17, 
uh, 14 through 15, when you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Sound familiar, right? You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren. You shall set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And so we can see from uh, the writings of Moses here that this was in the will of God for them to have a king over the nation, right? So it creates kind of a little bit of a conflict here. What are we dealing with? Because now they're asking for a king and God seems displeased, right, from the scriptures. And I think this will become obvious when we're introduced to Saul, but most of you have read ahead at one point or another and know what they are going to get. They're going to get King Saul, right? And in my mind, the, uh, the king that God had planned to be the first king would have been King David. Um, and that was going to be the promised thing. Remember, King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, not from the tribe of Judah, right? Uh, king David was from the tribe of Judah. And so although the request... I think God instilled that in their heart. I mean, he put it in the scriptures, right? So he instilled that in their heart, but it was the wrong timing, right? It was the wrong tribe and it was the wrong motivation. Their big motivation was not to seek God's will. Their big motivation was to conform to the world, right? That's what they wanted to do. And so, you know, and so a lot of times, you know, the Lord will put desires in our heart, but we need to be careful and make sure we're doing it in the God's timing, right? And that's, I think, what they fell into this trap here where they were rushing ahead of God, right? Because God did have a king planned. And, you know, I think you guys would agree that was probably King David was the, the initial king that was planned. But instead, they get Saul. A great start, but not, not a great king, right? He ended up, had a bad ending. Um, so... They, so anyway, so God does give in to their request. Psalms 106.15, we read, And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. And I like the New Living Translation. And this is not speaking about this particular event, but when we persist to have things from God and we're not seeking God's will, there's a possibility he's going to give us what we request. The New Living Translation of this verse says, so he gave them what they asked for, but he sent a plague along with it. <laughs> it's a little more upfront, right? So you get a little, you get a little extra. There's always trade-offs. And so we need to be careful what we ask for. We just might get it, right? And um, this is going to be the situation with the children of Israel. He's going to go ahead and give in to their request, but he's actually going to warn them um, beforehand to give them a warning of what they're about to face. And so then we'll read that next. Uh, verse 9, chapter 8, verse 9. And I'm going to go all the way through verse 18. Now, therefore, he, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. Listen to all these things, guys. I mean, I didn't count how many times it says take, but it's, it's a lot, okay? So first of all, he will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be 
horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to the officers and servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and he will be, and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. And so they're being forewarned. This is what you get, right? This is the trade-off. And obviously, um, you know, they, they were in a position where they were establishing a government. And you got to think they had a very limited government then, right? They had God and they had Samuel, the judge. They had the Levites who are ministers. They, they, they had a tithe, offer, an offering to the Lord to support the work of the, the priests. Um, but besides that, they had a very limited government. They didn't have a standing army. Uh, God fought their battles. Remember in Jericho? I mean, did they do much in Jericho? I mean, they blew horns and stuff like that, but uh, they didn't do a lot, right? They listened to what God told them to do. Even when in chapter seven, where God drew, uh, drove out the Philistines, yes, the children of Israel chased them out, but really God did all the work, right? So they didn't even need an army to support. And so what God's telling them to do is if you want a government, you think government's gonna solve your problem, this is the trade-off. This is what you're gonna get in exchange. And um, obviously, um, the I, several, first several times i read through this when I was younger, I thought, this is terrible. But then I read 10% tax. That sounds pretty good. But uh, <laughs> now, I mean, I went through just, I mean, a lot, there's more than a 10% tax, but there was a 10% tax. There was a wealth tax. You saw the income tax, right? From your grain, that's like your harvest. And then there's the wealth tax, right? 10% of your sheep and stuff like that. So what you have, and then obviously the draft of the kids and into service and all that stuff that's going on here. Um, but I went through... I just had to make a list of taxes we pay in the United States just because um, I was curious. I mean, all of these sound familiar to you guys, but here are some of your favorite taxes. Uh, income tax. Everybody pay income tax? Yep, even Hannah pays income tax at Subway. Uh, property tax. So if you own property, you pay property tax. Payroll tax. And this is sometimes doesn't, you know, your employer pays this, but you would make it if they weren't paying it. Uh, death tax, that's a bummer. Pay that. Even after you die, you're paying taxes. Capital gains tax, excess tax, like on gasoline, there's extra tax and certain items. Uh, sales tax, so after you make the money that you've been taxed on, then you got to go buy something with that money and then you get taxed on that money, right? Uh, a gift tax, don't forget to pay your gift taxes after Christmas. So whatever you get, don't forget to add it up and pay your gift tax. Uh, retirement tax, so there's extra taxes uh, in retirement. And so these are just some of the taxes. And as you can see, um, the Lord's actually merciful with them to only pay 10%. I, I read that most, the average person 
works until about May 15th for the government. So from January 1st to May 15th for the government, and then the rest of the year is for yourself. So, um, so we all work for the government. How about that? So this is a word of encouragement for you guys tonight. Um, but the government's expensive, right? And that's what, <laughs> that's what God's point is here. The government's expensive. And um, as we'll learn in the life of Saul, the government is not going to solve all your problems. And it's amazing today how many people think the government's going to solve their problems. Um, but they just won't, right? Um, I, I did a couple of quotes from our founders. Uh, this one I like. One useless man is a shame. Two is a law firm. And three is a Congress. And that's uh, John Adams. So there you go, from John Adams. So here's another one. And this is a great one. I, I mean, that one was kind of funny, right? But this one, this one is so true. Uh, whenever a man has cast a longing eye on office, and he's talking about a political office here, a rottenness begins in his conduct. And that was Thomas Jefferson that said that. And... Uh, cancel that guy for sure, right? Um, <laughs> but you, you think about this, and this is true, when that the natural state of man is when we uh, seek a position of authority and power is corruption to enter into our heart, right? Without being washed by the Spirit. And I'm not saying that there are, I'm sure there's politicians that love the Lord and um, humbly serve in their position. So I'm, I'm not throwing everybody under the bus, but you see a lot of pride in most politicians, right? And that's because that corruption has entered their heart. And they have a lot more motivations behind uh, what they do than just um, serving the people, so to speak, right? And, uh, and Thomas Jefferson warns about that. And I, I think he was right on in that. And so here we are, Israel wanting to be like the, the rest of the nations. And after, after verse 18, you would hope that they would just say, um, God, you're right, God, this is, this is not a good deal. <laughs> you know, let's do it your way instead. Uh, I don't like this deal, but that's not what happens. So verse 19, not a good transition here. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Verse 21, and Samuel heard all the words of the people and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. And so um, I'm gonna close actually in Hosea. So we're done in 1 Samuel. If you'll turn to Hosea, I didn't put the verse up, so you got to turn your Bibles. I know. It's rough working out those fingers tonight. Hosea 13 verses 9 through 11. Doesn't it blow your mind that the bondage people are willing to be under in order to avoid God and his will? You know, I, I could probably talk to Rick here one-on-one. -on -one, and how many people have you asked to pray for? And you know they were under bondage and they said, no, thanks. You know, because they prefer the bondage over submitting to the will of God or over healing from God or being 
um, over the, over God's power in their life, right? They they prefer the bondage, and it's and uh, that's kind of the position they were in here. Um, Hosea chapter thirteen verses nine through eleven, and we see this of account here. O Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from me. I will be your king. Where is any other that he may serve you in all your cities and your judges to whom you said, give me a king and princes? Verse 11, I gave you a king in my anger, and that was Saul, and I took him away in my wrath. And so we'll get you know, as we continue through the book of First Samuel, Pastor Victor will carry on in chapter 9, and we'll learn about the life of Saul. Um, just a few points to kind of close it out here uh, that I made, because one of the things I like to look at is kind of personal application, is, you know, I think Pastor Victor mentioned this about, I don't know, maybe he was quoting Corson or somebody else, but how the Old Testament is pictures for us, right, of what's, what's to come. And um, we can see this in the life of believer, believer where we have lordships or kingships in our lives, right? And um, yes, I know here Wednesday night, all of you have given your life to the Lord and you, you, you seek the Lord, but are there areas in, in my life, in our lives, that we have not given over to God's lordship, right? To him being king over. Are there areas in our lives where we're the king or where we rely on the world to be the king, right? To to make those decisions for us. And so that's one thing I kind of took away from this. And then um, number two was the world has a, a powerful pull to conform us. And so, you know, Paul warns about this not to be conformed to this world, but the world does have this powerful pull on us. And if we're not consistently kneeling before God and asking him to revive our heart, asking him to be the Lord of our lives, asking him to be the king of our lives, if we're not consistently do that, that pull will grab us and take us away from God's will, right? And we saw this you know, gap between chapter seven and chapter eight, And all this time went by and you could see that pull to conform to the world was on their lives. And so we need to be careful of that as believers. And then point number three I made is that a wise person carefully counts the cost. And God was gracious enough to tell them what the cost was up front, right? And he laid it out for them. And a wise person is careful to look at that and count the cost and to look at that end result in the path ahead. And ultimately, when we pray, I know um, everybody I prayed with here, I mean, even when we desire certain things, I've heard people say, not, not, not my will, but your will, Lord. And that's, that's a good thing, right? That's a good thing. I mean, not all churches are like that. They're like, name it and proclaim it. You know, if you, you don't have faith if you say that, you know? And, but that, that's not true because God knows the future. We don't, right? And his path is better than our desires ultimately. And so we do have desires that people will be healed of ailments, that relationships will be healed, that, um, you know, the people we're praying for with that are affected by these tornadoes that, you know, God will do a mighty work there. But ultimately we want his will to be done and his plan to be done. And so we need to keep that in uh, perspective as well. So that's it for tonight. Do you guys have any questions about chapter eight? Do I have to wait 20 seconds? Make it awkward or we're good?
All right, let's pray. Lord, uh, we just come before you now, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for sharing with us here tonight, Lord. I ask that you just search our hearts individually. Lord, point out areas that we uh, have other kings in our lives, Lord, that we've, we've um, maybe put aside certain parts of our lives that we, we don't include you in and that we've decided that we have this area under control, Lord, that we don't need, we don't need your help there. And Lord, let us um, not have so much pride about about how we, we are leading our lives, Lord. I, I pray that we're, we're just broken vessels here at Calvary Restore that are open and flexible to what you have for us. Um, no matter what you've given us, Lord, you're, they're your resources and your, your time. Our, our lives are your time, Lord. So I pray that we would just humbly submit to you, Lord, and, and make you kings over our lives, Lord. And we just love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.